All right. Good morning, everybody. A quick business note before we get started. In two weeks, I want to put this on your radar, we'll be having our annual budget presentation, which if you've been coming to the church for some time, you kind of know how that works. We take a portion of the service to update everyone on the annual budget, how we did in the previous year, and then moving forward for the next year. If you want a preview document with the summary uh, page kind of describing those numbers and those details, they're available, the document's available at the Connect booth out front on your way out. If not, in two weeks, you'll be here. And we'll go over those numbers, and then we need, the way this church works is we take a, a vote, so there's a membership kind of congregational approval to move forward with that. So that's July 16th in a couple weeks. Uh, but today, we are in week two of our series entitled Solomon, The Wisdom and Folly of the Son of David. Now, in many ways, this serves as a prequel to our series in Matthew, which we were in for quite some time, 70 weeks. Because in Matthew, if you were here, you recall that there's this massive emphasis on Jesus being the son of David and needing to be the son of David and the people looking forward to a coming son of David. And the question arises like, why this emphasis on a son of David? Why does it need to be a son of David? And more importantly, who was the original son of David? Like, there's a guy named David, he's a literal dude in history, and he obviously had an an original son who served as king, so what's up with him, what's his story? And so, that story is the life of Solomon, whom the Bible says was the wisest man on planet Earth. Now, before we jump into the beginning of the life of Solomon, I wanna talk about biblical interpretation for a moment. One of the important things you can develop when reading the Bible is to always take all of the Bible stories with you. And it's easier said than done. What I mean by that is oftentimes we can read a portion of the Bible, and so we read the story, and then like the next day or the next time we read the Bible, we read another story, and then we read another story. But every story of the Bible that you encounter, you need to be taking the previous stories of the Bible with you, because all of the stories are constantly interacting with each other. And that's why for some of you who are new to Christianity, new to reading the Bible, at first it could be very difficult because it's like, I don't even know what this means, but part of understanding the meaning is found in knowing other stories of the Bible. So my encouragement to you is just keep reading, keep reading, it'll get easier, and then you'll see how the stories are interacting. And if you've been a lifelong Christian, it's easier for you to sort of see how some of the stories interact. So today we're going to do that, and for some of you, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. For some, maybe you're already connecting some of the dots, but... When we read the scriptures, we want to be taking other stories with us and helping them, but in doing so, it'll help us uh, understand and interpret new passages. Okay, secondly, the first several chapters of the Bible are really important. Like the beginning 15 minutes of a movie, they set sort of the narrative direction of the entire scripture. So when we're reading stories in the Bible, we need to have in the back of our mind that God created a good world. There was the first humans, Adam and Eve, and they lived in a garden paradise where God literally dwelled with them. And there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, you could have any, any fruit, any tree, just don't eat of this one. And then additionally, we know that there's this mysterious serpent figure who comes in and tells them, no, you should be able to decide right and wrong in your own eyes. You should be able to eat of that. And so they eat the fruit and God comes in and kicks them out of the garden-like paradise and sends them off into exile. And then God promises, one day I am going to send someone to defeat this mysterious serpent figure. And you begin to wonder that, like maybe if there's a defeat of this mysterious serpent figure and there's a forgiveness of sin, maybe there's a way back to the garden paradise where men dwelt with God. So you have all of those stories 
kind of in your mind as you read. So take all of those with us as we jump into the life of King Solomon. Now we talked about this last week, but the story of Solomon begins probably with the story of David when God makes a promise to King David. King David, Solomon's father, has promised this. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. God says to David, you are going to have a son, and even though he's your son, I am going to be like a father to your son. And the son that you have will have a kingdom like no other. It will be an everlasting kingdom. It it will know no end. Additionally, this son of yours is going to have an everlasting kingdom, but on top of that, he is going to build the house of God, the temple. Which the temple, again, biblically, is the place where God dwells. This means David's son is going to build a temple where God will once again live among his people. And he's going to be doing so in a place called the promised land. And the promised land is, of course, described with the imagery of a garden-like paradise, a land of milk and honey and fig trees, a place where every man has his own vine. It's it's garden imagery. Let's take all of that with us now as we jump into the life of Solomon. Because as we jump into the life of Solomon, there's this anticipation building. Is this promised son of David going to be the guy who gets us back to the garden? Is he this king that's going to defeat the serpent? Like, exactly who is he? This is how we're introduced to Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was a great high place. Solomon used to offer thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Okay, now here's the thing where we said... um, If you know the biblical stories, the more able you'll be to understand other biblical stories. For those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament stories, you know that when kings sacrifice in high places, it's always a bad thing, right? If you're familiar with this, like going and sacrificing in the high places is a very bad thing. However, we're in this sort of weird in-between phase because the temple isn't built yet, the place where sacrifices should take place. So it's sort of weird. The Bible doesn't clue us in. In one sense, it's like, Solomon, why are you sacrificing in the high places? In another sense, you could be, because the temple's not built. Where else are you going to do it? You can also, though, say, maybe the Bible is showing us that Solomon's a good guy who loves God, but he doesn't have his wisdom yet, and that's going to come later. Nevertheless, what I want us to focus on for this part is this first line that says, Solomon loved the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord. This is, as far as I know, the first place in scripture where it says explicitly, and it's significant because it's a king, specifically that someone loved God. Like David was a man after God's heart and there was other people who loved God, certainly. But the like explicit phrase, this guy loved God. And they're saying it of a king. You have to understand the significance of this because love is the central ethical command in scripture. And that's rooted all the way back in Deuteronomy 6.4. 
It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. This verse about loving God is the central sort of ethical claim in the Hebrew scriptures and for the whole of the Bible. Jesus reaffirms it later. That's the number one thing, to love God with all of our hearts. Now, this first word here, and it's it's just hear or listen in English. In Hebrew, it's Shema. And Shema is what people actually call this verse, Deuteronomy 6.4, they refer to it as the Shema. And Shema, it's, it's great to translate it as hear or listen, but embedded in the Hebrew understanding of Shema is this implicit idea that you're not just hearing to, to like hear something and like process it in your brain, but there's this idea that you're going to hear, listen, and obey. So this comes out similarly in English, like if a parent says, hey, did you hear me? You hear me? They're not, the question behind, did you hear me, isn't like, on a sensory level, did your ears pick up audible communication? It's, are you, do you hear me? Are you going to listen to me? It's, are you hearing, listening, and obeying? So it's a receiving, and then it's embodying what you heard into action. And that's also how the Hebrew word works, shema. Hear, listen, and obey. And what are you to do? You are to love God with your heart, your soul, and your might. Now, sometimes, unfortunately, people can get into the weeds here by trying to distinguish all three layers of this. Like, what does it mean to love God with your heart? What does it mean to love him with your soul? What does it mean to love him with your might? And then you try to, like, diagram out, like, what, is, what, what does heart mean, and what does soul mean, and what does might mean? The point of this is that you love God with the sum total of your being. That's the point. It's not like trying to figure out the categories in which we ought to love God. It's loving God with the sum total of our being. In fact, the Hebrew word for heart here, levav, um, it, it actually functions differently than the English word heart. Like in, in modern English, especially in our modern culture, when people use the word heart, we're usually talking about our feelings or our affections. And the Hebrew word levav certainly has feelings and affections into it, but it also had the will and the mind in its understanding. So we might say there's our heart and our mind, where in Hebrew you can just say heart and that would communicate your feelings, your thoughts, and your will. So the main point, love God with the sum total of your being. And guess who's doing that? Solomon is. He loves God. What a remarkable thing to have written about you. Like think think of it like this. Let's say someone was going to write about your life. Would one of the top three things that would immediately come to their mind is I have to write about how much they love the Lord? Or maybe just if a friend at work was going to describe you, oh yeah, Bob from work, he's uh, this, this, and this. Would one of the first things be that person loved the Lord? They loved the Lord. Solomon has the Bible record that he loves the Lord. is very powerful and significant, especially for a newly installed king. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. 
and you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or to come in. God shows up, ask, what, what do you want? Ask what I shall give you. And listen, listen to the words of Solomon. They are clothed in humility. These are all words of humility. Lord, I'm, I'm not even here because of the works of my hands. It's because of your steadfast love for my father, David. And you're gonna bless David and you're gonna make me a king, your servant? And he's like, I'm but a child. I don't even know how to go in and out. Which is actually mirroring the promise made to David. Remember, the promise to David was that you're going to have a son and I will be a father to him. And now Solomon's description of himself before God is, I'm like a child. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't know how to lead. I don't know how to do this. So because of your steadfast love, which you honored my father, just, just recognize I am here as your humble servant. And he says, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. Okay, got to pause here because there's like tons of stuff going on. There's layers upon layers of things going on here. I just want to focus on just verse nine. Solomon says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind. Now, remember we said Solomon loves God, right? And we said Solomon is fulfilling the Shema. Solomon is doing the Shema. He's loving God. Now, that is sort of implicitly there. Like, you can't just say because someone loved God that the author of 1 Kings says, now think about the Shema. You can't infer that just from Solomon loving God, but there's more. What is implicitly in the text is now made explicitly clear. Unfortunately for, unfortunately for us, it's sort of hidden in the Hebrew a little bit. So Solomon says, I can have whatever I want. Give me an understanding mind. The Hebrew word for understanding here is shema. It's shema. The Hebrew word for mind here is levav, which is the word for heart. Remember in Hebrew, the word for heart means your affections, your mind, your will. So what is Solomon literally asking for at this point? Solomon is saying, Lord, can you please give me a shema heart? How beautiful is that? Lord, give me a Shema heart. Like this should be the prayer of every Christian. Lord, I stand before you. I am humble. Give me a Shema heart. That should be our prayer. It says, give me this Shema heart. And he's doing the Shema. He is loving God. Okay, so he loves God, he's asking for a Shema heart, and then this is the part where many people, especially if you grew up in church, talk about this story as the point where Solomon asked for wisdom, right? This is where Solomon asked for wisdom. Solomon doesn't ask for wisdom. What does he ask for? That I may be able to, to discern between good and evil. Now you might say, hey Isaac, uh, discerning between good and evil, that has a lot to do with wisdom, so you're making a big deal out of nothing. Okay, so part of what Solomon is asking for deals with wisdom, that's right. But if you just make it about wisdom, you're missing what this story is doing. Solomon doesn't ask for wisdom explicitly. He asks for the ability to discern 
between good and evil. In Hebrew, tov, good, ra, evil, or bad. I need to discern between good and bad, good and evil. Now, is there a formative and foundational story where people say, I will not accept God's reality and God's definitions of right or wrong, but I will do what's right in my own eyes. And then they begin to eat from a tree of tov and ra. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, good and evil, tov and ra. And so now you have a wise king who loves God. He is doing the Shema and he asks for a Shema heart and he is presented with the world. Solomon, what do you want? You can have whatever you want, ask of it. Does this sound familiar? You can have of any tree of you want, just don't do this one thing. And so now Solomon is metaphorically put before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he says, I'm not going to run this country, I'm not gonna run the kingdom in a way where I define what's good and bad. I need your wisdom, I need your ability to help me discern between good and bad. And so you have Solomon being presented as a son of David, a king over a kingdom like no other. And he is going to build the temple, the place where God will dwell with his people, and he's going to do it in a garden-like paradise. And within the midst of this garden-like paradise, there is a new Adam, a new ruler who's given dominion over the land, like the first Adam was. But rather than take that dominion and say, I will eat of the fruit, this new man with dominion says, help me to discern, Lord. I will not choose what's right in my own eyes. Help me to discern between good and bad. Give me a Shema heart. It's pretty powerful. It's powerful. But there's a whole lot more. A whole lot more. Okay, Solomon. What's up with his name? In Hebrew, Solomon is Shlomo. Now, if you listen carefully, even if you don't know Hebrew, you you probably can figure something out here. Shlomo sounds a lot like shalom. Shlomo, shalom. Solomon is likely like a verbal kind of version of shalom. Well, what does shalom mean? Shalom, most people in the modern world go, okay, shalom means peace. And it does mean peace. That's fine. But it's much more than that. Because the word literally at its core means to make whole. And you might ask, what does to make whole have to do with shalom, peace? Has a lot to do with it. Because when we think about peace, we normally think no fighting. No fighting, right? Like you go, if I had shalom in my house, there'd be no fighting. But shalom goes further than that. Shalom doesn't just mean no fighting. It means that everything is existing within harmony with each other. So you might say, um, The kids aren't fighting at home. We have shalom. It's like, no, no, no. It's more than that. It's everyone is in right relationships with each other. Mom to dad, dad to mom, parents to children, children to parents. The house is ordered. There's not chaos. Everything's managed. There is shalom when everything is in right relationship with everything else. So you see, it's much more than just not fighting, right? Because sometimes not fighting means just no one's talking to each other. But I need shalom. It's more than that type of peace. And you can have shalom in your heart. You can have shalom as an individual. You can have shalom in your house, within your family. You can have shalom as a kingdom. So there's different layers. But shalom essentially means 
to make whole. Everything is in harmony together to form a whole unit. So Solomon's name literally means to make whole. Do you follow this? He is the, he is the Shalom king. He is the Shalom king in the promised land who has a Shema heart who resists the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Solomon's the man. But there's more. Uh, Because Solomon will have a capital city. And the capital city is called Jeru Shalom. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So you could figure it out. Jerusalem, it's got Shalom in it. Jerusalem is literally the city or foundation or place of Shalom. So like continue to put these pieces together. There is a Shalom king who rules and reigns from his capital city, the city of Shalom, and he has a Shema heart and he refuses to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but asks God to give him wisdom. And he's building the dwelling place of God in the garden-like temple that's in a place called the promised land that's described as a garden. So the more biblical stories you know, the more you start to see. The biblical authors are presenting us, to, they're presenting Solomon to us as like, he's the, he is the long-awaited king. Remember we asked, is there gonna be some guy who comes along who rules and reigns and is so good that he could defeat the serpent of old and maybe get us back to the garden? That's him. That's him. He is the Shalom king in the city of Shalom, building the dwelling place of God, the temple, who has the Shema heart, who refuses to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is the guy who defeats the serpent. But there's more. Solomon has two names. Did you know this? Solomon's got two names. A lot of people don't know this. After David and Bathsheba lose their child, it says this in 2 Samuel 12, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went to her and lay with her and she bore a son and she called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah in Hebrew, Yedidiah, means beloved of Yahweh, beloved of the Lord. So follow this. Solomon has two names. He is beloved of the Lord, Jedidiah, but the beloved of the Lord is also the king who brings shalom. He's Jedidiah, beloved, and the one who makes whole, Solomon. Down to his names given to this guy. The scriptures are telling you, he's the man. This is the guy. It's time to defeat the serpent. We're going back to the promised land. We're gonna dwell with God. He will be our God. Heaven and earth will be united once again. So just like kind of put these together. Solomon is the Shalom king. He's building the dwelling place of God in the city of Shalom in a garden-like paradise called the promised land while maintaining a Shemal heart and resisting the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's the man. He's the dude. The scriptures are making it abundantly clear. Then it says, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning heart, mind, so that none like you 
has been before you or none like you shall rise after you. Can you imagine God telling you that? No one before you is like you and no one after you will be like you. I give you also what you didn't ask for, riches and honor so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. You are the man. No one before you, no one after you, no kings of the earth will ever be able to compare with you. I know you didn't ask for riches or honor. Have some. I sent my prophet and named you Beloved One. You are the king who brings shalom. So you see how, like, when you, when you bring all of these biblical stories with you, they start piling up. And now all of a sudden, what we might have jotted, oh yeah, there's this story in the Bible where a king asks for wisdom. It's a lot more than that. It's a lot more than that. Now, this is crazy. It goes on and says, and Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now, for modern people, when, you, when we tell stories and someone says, behold, it was a dream, that usually means what? It didn't happen. A biblical vision is much, it's, it's more real than reality. So that's not what it's saying. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all of his servants. Okay, I want to show you how fast something changes because it's, it's bizarre. Great story. Solomon's the man. He has wisdom. Solomon's making sacrifices. Look at the very next verse. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. It's jolting, right? Then one, the one woman said, oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside her while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. It's, it's jarring like the, And it's a weird story, right? It's okay to admit the Bible's weird sometimes. Like you're like, it's not weird. No, this is a weird story subjectively a bizarre story. Now, when the Bible's weird, you have to know that the Bible always knows what it's doing. The late, great biblical scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser said, when the Bible's weird, pay attention. Because when it's doing this, it's on purpose. It's not like, just, that's kind of weird, there's some ancient people, I I don't get it. Because normally when we encounter weird sections of scripture like this, some of you, if you're honest, you go like, Time to turn to the New Testament. Let's go to Matthew. But if it's weird, the Bible knows what it's doing. So you have two prostitutes who live in one house, and they each have a baby around the same time. One of the baby dies, and one of the prostitutes steals the living baby from the other prostitute and puts the dead baby at the rightful mother's side. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other mother said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. 
So if Solomon does what he's supposed to do, you would open to the law of Moses and see what steps you ought to take. Here's the problem. In the law of Moses, what you would do is you would search for two or three witnesses according to the law of Moses and then find other eyewitness who can testify who's the rightful mother. The problem is there's no two or three witnesses. It's this strange situation where there's these two women living in one house and there's no other eyewitnesses. This is why you need wisdom because if you just needed to open up to a Bible verse and it told, excuse me, it told you what to do, it would be easy. But you don't have two or three witnesses, so there's no other Bible verse to turn to. So Solomon has to execute wisdom. He needs wisdom. This is how he responds. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And then the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Cut the baby in half and let them each take a half. Now, a couple things. One, you have to understand that the sword in the scriptures has symbolic value. So a sword, it's, it's a literal sword that he's saying to chop this baby in half with, but it also, there's sim, the symbolism in the sword is that the sword is what cuts between things. It cuts things in half. And so the biblical authors use swords to describe the ability to cut between truth and lies between life and death, between good and bad, between good and evil. So Solomon takes a literal sword that has symbolic value where he will exercise his wisdom that he is asking God to give him to cut between good and evil. Truth and lies, life and death. Secondly, you need to understand that for many modern people, we just go like, Dude, you could see this guy's bluffing. There's no way this king is like really gonna chop a baby in half to prove a point. It's like, you have to understand, in the ancient world, no one in this room, in this setting is going, the king's bluffing. Like, people, the world is a brutal place and the ancient world was a brutal place. There are kings at this point in history who sacrifice their actual children to false gods. So there's kings alive that killed their own children to appease gods. So this child from some two unknown prostitutes to an ancient person isn't gonna be of worth much to a king. So it probably seems like the king's just angry, he's frustrated, these, people, these women shouldn't even be in my court. Cut the baby in half and let's be on with it. No one thinks he's bluffing. But if you're this mother, the rightful mother, you can imagine the panic that's setting in at this point, right? Like you went to the supposed wise king. He'd be able to discern, he'd plead my case. And now, now he said, get him a sword to cut the baby. And you can picture this mother's heart just starting to pump and pump and the sweat. It's like, what am I gonna do? You know, we don't know how long this lasted, how long the pause was, but you know, you've been in those situations where there's a panic. What am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? I can't let him kill my baby, but this woman is evil. She's going to steal my child. What am I going to do? And then it says, the woman whose son was alive said to the king because her heart yearned for her son, oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. Save the baby. She can have him, just save my boy. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor hers. Divide him. The king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all 
Israel heard of the judgment that the king rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. All of Israel stands in awe of the Shalom king in the Shalom city because he doesn't just have wisdom, the wisdom of God is in him. So let's put the pieces together. Solomon is the Shalom king building the dwelling place of God in the city of Shalom in a garden-like paradise called the promised land while maintaining a Shema heart and resisting the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and by his wisdom he can cut or make whole. Now, got to do some work here because this story is bizarre, right? It's a little strange. And just be honest, it's like, it's a strange story. Now, in one sense, the author of 1 Kings could have just chosen this story to be like one of the first examples of Solomon's wisdom. But in another sense, you have to ask the question, like Solomon, at this, in his life, would have had hundreds, maybe thousands examples of great wisdom. If someone has if you have thousands of examples of Solomon's wisdom and actions, and this is the one you choose, could it be possible that there might be a little bit more here? You know, so there's obvious one layer of meaning. There's an obvious layer of one meaning. This is a, a simple example of Solomon executing wisdom. But the author did choose this as the one example to show off Solomon's wisdom. Is there additional layers of meaning embedded into this one very real story? When most of the church fathers in church history looked at this passage, they usually saw more layers of meaning. There's like, this story is weird. There's more stuff going on here. So let's explore this a bit. What does Solomon's name mean? Remember? What does it literally mean? To make whole. To make whole. Isn't it a little strange that the first example of Solomon's wisdom that we get is a story showing how The one who can make whole uses a sword to cut between truth and lie and keep the baby whole. The whole life is preserved, but he also is able to cut between good and evil, good and bad. It's like, that's interesting. The story kind of like rhymes with his name. It harmonizes with his name. Secondly, there's some history we need to understand. The book of 1 Kings that we're reading is followed up by the book of 2 Kings. What you need to be aware of is that 1 Kings and 2 Kings is actually one big giant literary unit. It's split up in the Bible, but it's like 1 2 Kings, part one and part two. It's one literary unit. It's meant to be read together. And it tells the history of the kings of Israel. The same author who writes the ending of the story knows the beginning. How does 2 Kings end? It ends with the last king of the southern kingdom, having all of his sons killed before him, and then his eyes gouged out so that the last thing he saw was the murder of his sons, and then he's taken off into exile outside of the promised land. So the same guy who wrote the ending knows the beginning. Now this is what's fascinating. You might have heard me say that the, it ends with the, 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 the southern kingdom's king being brought into exile. Well, why did I say southern kingdom? 
Well, because Israel at one point in its history was united and there was a united kingdom under a united monarchy. But then very early in the book of 1 Kings, Israel divides into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is Israel, the southern kingdom is Judah. Now, the united monarchy, the idea of a united kingdom is much more important to the biblical authors than it is to us modern people. But it's like, there was a day where the kingdom was united under one good king. Now, how many kings existed in the book of 1 Kings? How many kings had their reign be a reign over the united kingdom, the united monarchy? Take a guess. One. How long is Israel united? For the reign of one king. That's it. King David, the father of Solomon, he's the one who initiates the uniting of the kingdom. Then he passes that united kingdom to Solomon. And then Solomon rules and reigns over a united kingdom. And only in his life is the kingdom not divided. No other king rules over a united monarchy. After Solomon, his son Rehoboam splits it and it's all division from there. So for the rule of one king, do you have a united kingdom? For every other king the kingdom is cut in two. The kingdom is divided. Hmm. So could it be that the author of 1 Kings chose this story out of hundreds of acts of wisdom to demonstrate Solomon's ability to rely on God to discern good and evil and he's the king who could cut between truth and lies and make whole. Not only does he do it with the life of that son, but he is the only king to do that with the very kingdom of God. With Israel, with the people of God, he is the only king that doesn't divide. And in fact, it's through his wisdom that the kingdom stays whole. Furthermore, next week, it might be even hinting at this, Solomon is going to build the temple. Heaven and earth were cut apart. They divorced because of sin. Heaven and earth used to overlap. God used to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. The temple, which will be built by Solomon, will now be the one place on earth where heaven and earth overlap and God dwells once again with his people. Solomon is undoing the division at the level of the story, which is a real historical reality, but then the story is told to us so that we see Solomon is actually able to make whole not only the baby, but the kingdom. And it may be pointing to the very next chapter, Solomon is going to be the one who builds the dwelling place of God on earth. Solomon's the man. This is the dude. You guys see this. If ever there is ever going to be someone who comes and defeats the serpent and takes us back to the garden, it's King Solomon. There was never a king like him. There was never going to be a king after him. He was given wisdom beyond any other human being. And he is the Shalom king building the dwelling place of God in the city of Shalom in a garden-like paradise called the promised land while maintaining a Shemal heart, resisting the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And now we see in this story, it's by his wisdom that he is able to cut between truth and lies and make whole. He's the man. Solomon's the guy. Now, Solomon is like the first guy in our story who's able to stand before the tree and says like, I will not define what's good and evil in my own eyes. 
I am not going to determine right and wrong based upon what I think. I am going to rely on God. I will submit to his description of good and evil and I will come under it. And so he asked for wisdom. And in that way, Solomon serves as a great example for all of us. Like we should be like Solomon and ask God for wisdom. That's not only what this story hints at, it's what the New Testament then makes explicitly clear. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Anybody need some wisdom? Does anyone need more wisdom? Does, Does the world need more people with wisdom? I mean, when you look around, does it look like there's a lot of folly and foolishness and a severe lack of wisdom? If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. He's generous. Remember what he did to King Solomon the wise. If any of you lacks wisdom, let ask God. He gives generously. He wants to give you wisdom. The problem is you don't want his wisdom. Human beings like to determine what's right and wrong, what's good and bad in their own eyes. We walk in our own ways. We do what's right before us. We put ourselves on the throne. But God, give me wisdom. This is like the most simple application of any sermon. Like, what are we to make of all this? Ask God for wisdom. And in doing so, you're also implicitly coming to him in humility, like Solomon did. Because if you're saying, I need wisdom, you're saying, I need wisdom which I myself do not have. Lord, I'm humble before you. Help me with wisdom. Do you need wisdom in your personal life, with your family, with your friends? Do you need wisdom with relationships? Do you need wisdom with your future? Do you need wisdom with with stuff at work? Do you need wisdom before God? Do you need wisdom on how to lead your children? Do you need wisdom on, on raising a family so that your children's children serve the Lord? It's like, Lord, give us wisdom. We want wisdom, God. Please give it to us. You are generous. Give us wisdom. Solomon is that guy, and he's that example. He doesn't define what's right and wrong in his own eyes. He submits himself to the will of the Lord. Now, the reason why we should do this is not only because it's the right thing to do, but God is also, by definition, the one who knows what's good and bad. So his wisdom is good, and it's good for you. And that sounds obvious, but, but if we were to go around in this room, and as long as you've been a Christian for a few decades, you probably got some testimony relating to this. If you're new to Christianity, uh, learn from others. But there was a time in your life where you knew like what God would have you do. And you didn't do it. You decided what was good and evil in your own eyes. You said, give me the fruit. I will eat the fruit. I, I in my own wisdom can figure this out apart from you, God. So give me the fruit. I'll decide what's right. And then you know, like, how did that go for you? Remember this? Like, if you've been a Christian for a few decades, there's been times where you've done this, or maybe you're in the moment right now where you're doing it. It's like, it ends in a train wreck because the wisdom just isn't a command by God. It's what's good for you. He loves you. And so you define what's right, and you go down, and it ends in a train wreck. And depending upon how big of a deal, with, deal it was, it can be a train wreck worse than you can ever imagine. And I'm sure there's testimonies in this room of people who said, I hurt myself, the people I loved, 
My children to this day are bearing the consequences of my own actions because I lacked wisdom and I did what's right in my own eyes. This is a train wreck, man. So it's a very terrifying thing for a human being to say, give me the fruit, I decide what's right and wrong. It's a very terrifying thing and the consequences can be beyond what you ever imagined. It's a terrifying thing for a human being to tell Almighty God, I decide. As terrifying as that is, what's even more terrifying is when an entire culture says, we will determine what's right in our own eyes. Give us the fruit. We can determine, we can determine, we can discern between good and evil. So you can imagine the terrifying consequence of an individual doing this and the consequences upon their family. What happens when an entire culture defies God, shakes their fist in defiance? Give us the fruit. We decide what's right and wrong. What would that look like? What would it look like if an entire culture said that? Let the hearer understand. You don't have to look very hard. What does it look like when an entire culture says we decide what's right and wrong? There you have it. So we need people to say, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me, I don't want to walk in the ways of men. I don't want to walk in the ways of Adam. I want to walk in different ways, Lord. Give me wisdom. You're generous. And here's the thing you have to understand. The wisdom of God is not perceived as wisdom from foolish men. Foolish men see the wisdom of God as foolishness. And when they do that, what is up is down and down is up. What is good is bad and bad is good. Does this sound familiar? This is the wisdom of God. For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. What the world sees as foolish actions by God is actually the wisdom of God. And it's not just the wisdom of God in a generic sense, it's the wisdom of God made to save humanity. So when you look at, when you see Jesus, in one sense, in the world's eyes, you could say, are you telling me that that poor first century Jewish man, that Galilean man who died the slave's death in agony on a Roman cross, that that guy was the world's true king and true Lord? And, that, and by that Galilean man dying a slave's death on a Roman cross, he indeed was saving humanity? The world says that's a foolish claim. That's nonsense. Nevertheless, it is the wisdom of Almighty God. It is the wisdom of God. It's the wisdom made known to us foolish people who thought we knew better. For consider your calling, Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. This puts us on the proper playing field. He's talking about us. God chose the foolish things. That's us. 
to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that, here's the key, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the very wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What was foolishness to humanity was the wisdom of God. And thank God that in his infinite wisdom, he saw fit to save a wretch like me. It is foolishness by anyone else's definition that God Almighty would die on a cross for a wretch like me. But God in his infinite wisdom saw fit to give his son up for us. And so when we go before God, there's nothing for us to boast in. Let no one boast except in the Lord because that's the only boast we got. You served me, you saved me, you found me when I didn't deserve it. And you did it by the true son of David's death on a cross. So there's no room to boast. No room to boast. The humble position of asking God for wisdom says implicitly, I'm kind of foolish, Lord, and I will be tempted to eat of the fruit. I will be tempted to define what's right and wrong in my own eyes. But like King Solomon, I want to come before you and humbly say, I submit myself to you. Give me wisdom. Does any of us lack wisdom today? Any of us need wisdom? Well, let's go before our God who says he generously will give us wisdom. Let's stand as we take communion and ask him for the gift of wisdom. Lord, we come before you and we need wisdom. It is through your wisdom that you created the world and through your wisdom that you sent the son Jesus to die on a cross, which seemed like foolishness to the world, but was the wisdom and power and plan from the beginning. On the night Jesus, the Son of God, was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body, it's given for you. When you take this, remember. And so, Lord, we remember what you did on our behalf. And we remember that that act, that day, every single person would say was foolish. There was no wisdom in Jesus dying in that manner. Nevertheless, we remember and say this was the wisdom and power of God to save even to the ends of the world, even unto us. So Lord, we remember. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup, and as we take it, it's our promise and pledge of allegiance to faithfully serve him and proclaim the gospel, his death and resurrection until he returns. So Lord, help us to be faithful. Give us wisdom. We give you our allegiance. We humbly ask for you to bless us. We need wisdom. Let's take So Father, as we close... We close with worship and adoration of your son, Jesus. 
the wisdom of God hidden before the foundations of the world and made known at the fullness of the ages, at the fullness of time, the mystery, the wisdom of God made known. And we thank you. We acknowledge today your wisdom and your ways are above ours. You define reality. You define good and bad. Our opinions don't determine reality. Your word does. So we humbly submit before it. We humbly submit ourselves to you and we humbly ask for wisdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.